Well, we're continuing our series on the church, the glorious body of Christ. And you may remember, or you may not remember, that last week we began talking about, well, what is the church? And we said there's four things the church has said throughout time, both in the Nicene Creed and Apostles' Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And last week we focused on those first two, one and holy And we began by saying that each of those is ultimately a reflection of God. The church is one because God is one. And then we said there's kind of two sides of this. On the one hand, this is objectively true. We are one. We have one baptism, one faith, one Lord. And yet, because of that oneness, we are to pursue oneness. Or we don't say let's pursue oneness. We say let's pursue unity or peace. So because of... The fact that we are one, we should pursue that so that people and we can realize that. And we even noted Jesus says this is so important that if you're going to worship and realize your brother or sister has something against you, you should stop. Being reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than public worship. Or as well, he said, our unity is a witness to his actually coming. And we ended that section by noting this isn't just unity in some kind of ethereal, spiritual sense. Oh, we're all unified. But should be shown in the way we care for one another, physically, monetarily, relationally, all these things. Then we focused on the aspect that we are holy. And again, that's a reflection of God. God is holy, holy, holy. And there's two sides. The objective, we are holy. We're called saints. We are saints now. And yet, there's a subjective. That's not always what we see in our life. So we're called to pursue holiness and so there's both of these and there's a warning that if look we're not striving for holiness we won't come to know come to see god and we ended that one by noting that holiness is not just a set of external things well if you go to church pray all these things you're holy holiness starts internally and works to external actions it's both well if you notice on your page the order that we say it in the order I listed is one holy Catholic apostolic church. So the next logical one would be Catholic, but I'm going to do apostolic, which you'll see why later, and then Catholic. So what does it mean when we say the church is apostolic? Well, we have to define that term. You like, uh, should have put this whiteboard up here. Uh, It comes from a word, apostello is the verb apostolos not too different from what they sound like do my best R.C. Sproul on my stuff on the board in another language um, so this is what we would it's close to a transliteration we just say it the way they say it apostle is apostolos that's pretty simple um, always nice when you're learning Greek or Hebrew and the word is exactly what you say oh I know what that is Um, But nonetheless, it means, if it's a verb, to send, if it's referring to the noun, it's sent one, the one who is sent. Thus, in a very generic sense, every Christian is an apostle. Now, hear me, in generic sense, because we're all sent. Christ sends us all into the world. So in a generic sense, we're all apostles. And even, you could turn to Hebrews 3, we're not going to, but in there, Hebrews 3, 1, Jesus is declared to be an apostle. Why? Because he was sent by God the Father. However, we have to realize not only is it used 
Generically, it's also used specifically. We are going to turn here. I didn't put it on your page for some reason, but turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and we'll start on the other side of the room. Stephanie, could you read verses 12 and 13 for us when you get there? Luke 6, 12 and 13. All right, so you notice at the end, he specifically chose 12, and he designated them apostles. Now, so he's giving them a specific role, a specific title. You know, he had many disciples, as you read through. You know, he had other disciples. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple, the one who came and buried him. But he wasn't one of the select 12 disciples. And so here... It's these 12 were specific men that Jesus commissioned and charged to be his representatives. The idea comes from an Old Testament idea from a word Sherlock. So the idea of deputizing or commissioning someone with authority. And I talked on this in, when we preached through Galatians, and I'll mention an illustration, and I mentioned then. And that is this last summer, we were in Colorado in a small town, 10,000 people maybe, Canyon City. Maybe 10,000 people. And in this small town, there's this huge Catholic abbey. And at one point, they thought it was going to be the Notre Dame of the West, but all kinds of reasons it didn't become that. But it kind of fell into disrepair. Well, there's this rich man in California, and he gave charge, gave authority to a man to buy investment property for him. Well, this man, the man who could buy investment property, was dating a famous Hollywood actress who liked famous old ruins and buildings. So Mr. Financial Investor was like, I'm going to buy this and impress her. And he bought it and started fixing it up. Well, she wasn't that impressed. And then the man who was the real capital investor found out that he bought it and charged him, look, that's not what I authorized you to do. But because he had authorized him, he couldn't go back and undo the sale. So he now owns this property in this small town in Colorado that he really doesn't want. But he commissioned, he authorized someone to speak, to go in his stead. Now, though, of course, the apostles didn't go opposite of what Jesus did. That idea paints, that image paints the picture that Jesus appointed 12 men who were to go and in his, for him, speak, to act in a way, though he's not there. And yet, though we see that we do see this sharp difference because Jesus made sure that they wouldn't be freelance doing whatever they want and then just saying well they want me to do it I got his money I can do what I want no he gave them something so they would always do what Jesus wanted and that is God's spirit turn to John chapter 16 13 through 15 and David if you could read that for us when you were there and actually I'm going to pass out some other verses real quick Chris, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Sarah, 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. 13 through 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will 
take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in there it says, whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare it to you. So the things that the apostles wrote were given from Christ. They were his words. So thus, we hear certain things that they say. 1 Corinthians 14.37 If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So Paul says, look, if you're a really spiritual person, you're going to realize that what I say when I'm speaking in my apostolic role is a command from the Lord. This wasn't this that they could go like, uh, the Lord tells you to go get me another donut. I'm an apostle. God's will. Go do it. Yeah, you know, that, that would be abusing. That's not what they could do. But when they were speaking in their authoritative role, they could say, thus saith the Lord. Or Second Thessalonians 3.14. That's a pretty strong thing. You know, I, I don't feel like I have that authority to say, well, if y'all don't always do what I say, you should uh, kick them out of the church. You know, we would say that's an abuse of a power. That's a p- pastor thinking he's more than he is. But the apostles could say that because they were representatives of Christ. And that's why I put on your page generic and specific usage. Yes, generically, we're all apostles. We're all sent ones. Specifically, though... We are not functioning in that way. Even pastors today are not functioning in that way. So understanding that then helps us understand two functions of what it means to be an apostolic church. First, we're apostolic if we stay in line with the teaching, the truth that the apostles taught. John seventeen twenty. Arnaldo, would you turn there? Olivia, would you turn to Ephesians 2? 20 through 21. Now, I actually got them on the page, so this should be a little easier. Corbin, Galatians 1, 6. Can't run away. I'm going to get I'm you. I'm not running away. I left my Bible up there. I'm, I'm, I'm not going back up there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you did say this on Galatians 1, 8. Galatians 1, 8. Thank you. Read the page. Don't listen to me. And can John 7, 16. Got the word. All right. And David, that takes us back to you, John 17, 18. All right, I think we're starting with Arnaldo, John 17, 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. All right, who are the ones who would believe in Jesus through their words? Us. Us. Yeah, any person who's a believer today, ultimately, if you work it back, believes in Jesus because of the apostles. Those who believe through their words, through the words of the apostles. You know, all we know about Jesus is what's written for us in these pages. Thus, Ephesians 2.21. That's right. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ 
Alright, so Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, but what is built? Well, it's built on the apostles and prophets. So, building up from Jesus, the foundation is what they taught. Now, I emphasize here, it's the role, not the role, but it's the teaching of the apostles. And I say that not because I go out of my way to poke Roman Catholics, but we do disagree with them here. Um, because they would say there's this idea of apostolic succession. And what they mean by that is they believe they can draw a direct line from Peter all the way down from one apostle to the next that the apostle's role has been passed on. So that in their view, the Pope today is standing in the role of the apostles. And they would say that the Pope can speak ex cathedra. That doesn't mean everything he says is always true. But if he speaks in that role ex cathedra, he is speaking words just like the apostles were. They are inerrant. Now he doesn't, I'm not aware of them using that right or privilege very often. You know, I don't think the last one did at all. But nonetheless, they believe in apostolic succession. Whereas we would say, no, they didn't pass on the role. What they passed on was their teaching, their words. That's the foundation. That's what it's talking about in John 17, John 18. And this isn't just like, okay, well, this is a clever idea, argument we came up with because, you know, then we got to the Reformation and we kind of had to rethink things because we don't want to be Roman Catholic. Even Galatians 1.8, even before all that, helps us know that that's not what was in God's mind. Galatians 1.8. But even if we, or an Yes. <laughs> so here, Paul's making very clear what you should stick to is not any person. What you should stick to is the message that you received. That's what we are faithful to. And so, you know, even in the New Testament, we see even Paul himself distancing himself from, it's not believing him, it's believing the message that was sent through them you know they were messengers we don't believe the messengers we believe the message because it was given to them which ties in with john 7 16 because this is even what jesus did so jesus answered them my teaching is not mine but his who sent me now again remember sent that's the word apostello jesus saying my words aren't mine him who sent me the apostles words aren't theirs that him who sent him now, all of this may seem kind of trivial. Okay, why are we talking about this? So, this is all true. Who really cares that we're apostolic? Who cares that we're in line with the teaching of the apostles? Well, because it is actually still very relevant for today. Well, how's that? Well, have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, I agree with Jesus. I love Jesus. But then the apostles completely distorted his message. Or I like the red letters of the Bible, the letters where Jesus spoke. Those are the ones I follow. Or you could pick specific issues and they would say, well, yes, other places of the Bible say that, but Jesus never said that. I follow Jesus. You know, what are they saying? They're basically saying, well, they weren't divinely sanctioned authorities. And we'll look into that more. But what we're arguing is that Jesus distinctly, uniquely called these 12 men, minus Judas, then plus two others, Matthias and then Paul, so 13, to be 
authorities to speak on his name and an authority that when they died ended with them was not continued to be passed on and so only to the degree that we speak in line with what's in here are we apostolic to the degree that we start teaching our own ideas or start teaching in contrary then we no longer continue to be one holy catholic apostolic church because we're not in line with the teaching of the apostles so that's the first way that's applied but the second is we are apostolic because jesus sent us remember sent is the meaning of the verb apostello sent us into the world john 17 18 i think that's back to you david yep And those are direct words. As you sent, apostel lost, just a different feminine ending, sent me into the world, so I have sent apostel la, them into the world. You know, the Great Commission begins with go. Ascending commission. Now, I've had good friends who I think make a mistake because they have said, I remember having these conversations with them, well, you know, we're really all apostles. We're all sent. But based on what we've said, what is the misunderstanding they're putting in there? What are they confusing? Yeah, okay. And they're also con confusing a verb with a noun. You know, the verb, to use a slightly different example, the verb for service in the New Testament is diacono, diacayano, or something like that, from which we get deacon. deacon. You know, it's a very similar idea. This, here you see the, the verb and the noun are very similar. Same with deacon. The verb and the noun are similar. But we don't say, well, everyone in the church is a deacon. Well, you could. That wouldn't be wrong. You know, we're all called to serve. So on one level, every Christian is a deacon. Yet, we also realize there's a distinct role of the office of deacon. You know, you could say the same for elder. The word elder is literally, um, or one of them is presbyteros, which just means older. Older people, we, I mean, we even use that term still, they're elderly. Now, we, we don't mean they hold the title. But, you know, that's, making, that's not being clear on distinctions between words, generic uses and distinct uses. So someone might say to you someday, well, you're an apostle. Okay, well, if you mean by that I'm sent by God, yes. If you mean by that... I'm one of these foundational 13 men, then no, that's not the case. And I don't know about you, sometimes I'll get flyers in the mail at church, or I'll go to church website, and they'll say, the apostle and his wife. I'm always like, I don't know what they mean by that. But I know what they shouldn't mean by that. You know, if they mean by that generically, hey, he's one called, sent to be a pastor, okay. It's not how I would use it, I think it's a little confusing, but okay, that's fine they mean he's got this special role or she has that special role then I think maybe they should be a little more clear because I think that's unhelpful but can I ask a question yeah so the things that the apostles wrote we now I mean they're scripture they are inspired by God but there are people who believe that we are all apostles believe that there's some continuation of like, that what could be written today could be not the ones I was talking with. They would they would say, yeah, Scripture ended with the New Testament. I don't really know why they were trying to make that point, honestly. But 
I gave some reasons. Why do you think we should emphasize the unique and unrepeatable role of the apostles? Or a very similar question. What are other reasons future believers could not also carry on the role, the same role of apostle? Yeah, that actually is a requirement. Acts, I mean, I don't memorize this. I have the notes. Acts 1, 21 through 22, when they're talking about who will be the next apostle, and they draw lots, they say they have to have seen the risen Lord. So, I mean, it may seem obvious, but there's still people who, I mean, not, I don't try and poke other denominations, but Roman Catholics would say that apostolic succession, I'd go, obvious he can't um, anyways other reasons why it's important to emphasize you know this is the end of that was the end of apostles they were unique they had a specific role that ended with them they may go back to that point about the apostles had to see the risen Lord they may be thinking why was Paul an apostle if he wasn't there during Christ's ministry and like remember the criteria was that he seen the risen Lord he did Yeah, on the road to Damascus. He, Jesus appeared to him. Well, Mormons say that too. That the Lord appeared to him. To whoever that founder was. <coughs> and that's how they carry on their religion. Yeah. Saying that he was sent. So the apostles, the original thirteen, they also had well, they didn't have powers in and of themselves, but they were they healed people in the name of the Lord. So I don't think anybody here can do that. You haven't been watching enough TBN lately, have you? <laughs> <laughs> I know of. Clearly, you're not watching enough Sarah. Sarah and I on our honeymoon, we're on a flight, and there was a woman next to us. Have I told, said this story? No, no. Oh, well, I was, uh, I'm getting old, and I'm like old people tell the same stories over and over. But nonetheless, um, <laughs> this woman was going on and on about how wonderful one of these great televangelists was and had healed her two or three times? Three times. And yet, we were literally the last people off the plane because she couldn't even get up and walk. They had to like lift her, if I remember correctly, into a wheelchair from her seat and then push her off. You know, I'm just thinking, the healings that are in the New Testament meant that you were whole, not that you couldn't even get. So I don't know what she meant by healing, but clearly not, this is not healed. <laughs> um, so anyways. It's always fun to see those guys wearing glasses. <laughs> I feel like to, to give people the designation of apostle today gives them way too much authority. Yes. It just And especially when you look at how the church is not what is that? unified. It's the coffee. Okay. Unified on, on even not 
non-essentials, I think that kind of casts a shadow back on scripture. If the people, apostles today, cannot agree with themselves, what does that say about what happened in the, new, in the early church and what was written? Yeah, good point. Yeah, and like Arnold was saying, I'm almost positive that Mormons today have apostles, like a group of men who they say are apostles. Yeah. So we can see twistings of this. Um, so to change this up a little bit, how would you respond if someone said something like, well, I love Jesus, but just not the apostles, or Jesus never said that. I follow the teachings of Jesus, of love and compassion. Okay, well, I mean, that's going, so I got too specific, but, you know, the general idea, I follow Jesus, not what these other people... Yeah. You're basically saying, if you want to follow the sayings of Jesus, you want to follow all of them except the ones where he commissioned the apostles to... Yeah, I, mean, I think that's, you know, not to corner them or kind of hey, hey, stab them, but just point out, well, Jesus said he appointed these, so those are some of Jesus' words. I never understand why people will say, well, I believe what the Bible says, like the red letters, you know, but I don't know about the rest of this. And it's like, those are just meant, okay, well, the whole entire Bible was transcribed by a man at some point. So if you can't believe part of it to me, then you can't believe any of it. Because if you think that some of this stuff is not correct, what the disciples said, then how do you know that any of it is, is right? And then what do you base your salvation on? Because all of the faith and the promises that you hold on to from Jesus or any part of the Bible, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to have really have any faith in it at all. Yeah, those are good questions. Um, we could reflect on that a lot, but let's move to the next one, uh, that the church is Catholic. If you're looking at your page it's on the back. Now, all of these I put in caps except Catholic I put in lowercase, and we'll emphasize that second. Two important notes up front. First, you may know this, Catholic means blank, not blank. Universal, Universal not Roman. <laughs> so just the word Catholic if you look it up in a dictionary, one of the definitions should be universal. It's just this idea that the church is not just a local body. It's a universal group of believers. So this is often a big hang-up. I remember growing up in a church that never recited any creeds or confessions. And being in a church where we did the Nicene Creed, I'm like, why are we saying we believe in the Catholic Church? I don't believe in the Catholic Church. Well, no, the, that is not, if you say that, you're not meaning I believe in the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. You're saying I believe that 
not just us gathered together here, but down the street and across the globe and those 200 years before us and those 200 years after us, we're all part of the same body. That's what it's affirming when we say that the church is Catholic. Second quick note, you can look, you can get out a Greek concordance, you can get an English concordance, any language concordance, and you're not going to find the word Catholic anywhere in the Bible. You're not going to find the word universal, not least in this sense. So this is something that is derived, or it's an implication, or it's an inference, however you want to say that, not a translation. Whereas, apostolos, that's a translation or transliteration of a word, or one. Last week we saw lots of verses that said, we are one faith, one Lord, one baptism, or holy. You shall be holy as God is holy. Okay, those are all direct words from the Bible we're applying to the church. Catholic is not a direct word, but that doesn't mean it's less true. It just means we're taking these ideas and bringing them together. Yet while we say that, not everyone agrees with us. So here is a Christian scholar. He writes, the New Testament church is not an invisible, universal, universal, intangible, mystical fellowships of saved people. The evil idea, he writes, of a universal, invisible church was instigated by the Roman Catholic Church and has been copied and siphoned along by Protestants. The idea that one automatically becomes a member of a big, universal, invisible, spiritual church the instant he is saved is an erroneous idea. That was Dr. Albert Garner in Defense of the Faith. So I'm sure, as far as I know, I haven't read that book, I found that quote, but as far as I can tell, he probably would believe that we're saved by faith in Christ. He's not denying that. And we'll look later, if you look at the very bottom I have somewhere, what I thought I did, I might have taken it out, uh, good reasons that people don't want to argue for a universal church. But though they have good reasons, I think they're incorrect. But again, the question needs to be, what does the Bible say? And we're going to argue that the church is Catholic. It is universal. And as with all these things, it is because that's God's character. God is universal. He rules over all. He created it all. Uh, got time to pass out verses. Colossians 1, 16, Chris, Sarah, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. Excuse me, Arnaldo, Ephesians 5, 25. Olivia, John 17, 20. Is that the one you had earlier? Okay, someone else had that. Uh, Corbin, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Shauna, Zephaniah 3, 10. You have to get you flipped to your table of contents for that one. Yeah. I could have you turn to Hezekiah, but you'll be looking for a while. Uh, David, Revelation 5, 9. Well, everyone got a verse. Perfect. Colossians 1.10 here is talking about what Christ rules over, what Christ is creator of. 1.16, Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. This is a softball question, but what did Christ create? Everything. All things. I mean, I know that's a softball question. No one likes to do this one. It's easy. It's home run. T-ball. T-ball, thank you. T-ball's even softball's, easier than softball. Softball's <laughs> see what you did there. Uh, so all things. Christ is the ruler of all. 
all, not just in the past, and now things have just gone without. He continues to oversee all things. And so his church is over all, or is universal. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23 is talking about Christ and what he was given authority over. And it says, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. As he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Uh, so, and he, God the Father, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, that doesn't just, in my understanding, mean just a local church. If the idea was that there are only local churches, then he should have said, and he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him head over all things to the churches. But he writes, to the church, singular. Well, only singular then how can we say we have these different bodies or ephesians 5 25 could you read that one for us arnold husbands love your wives even as christ also loved the church and gave himself for it yeah so it's talking about a singular thing christ gave himself for it not for them so somehow there's this idea singular entity church that is describing all believers from all time. Well, that's all we mean by universal Catholic Church. And we see that if, as that man said, this was just a Roman Catholic idea that we're continuing on, then what does that mean? Christ didn't just die for us here at 8th and Travis, or just the ones at 8th and, I don't know, what would you call that? The highway? Whatever address is for First Baptist, or any other church. Ethan Braun. He died for the church, meaning all people, not just in the world, but from all time. He died for the Old Testament saints too. So universal is not just geography. It's also chronology. Time is what it's talking about. Or even John 17, verse 20, Jesus is praying and he prays. Jesus is praying for the people throughout time. One church. So we see this idea. Now, some people give the wrong idea. Well, okay, this is a New Testament idea. But in the Old Testament, God's plan was one people. Well, God sent Jonah to Nineveh in the Old Testament. That's not just an Israelite nation. And then part of their repentance wasn't that they needed to come join the nation of Israel. They repented and they were saved as they stayed living in their Assyrian ways. Or, you know, Rahab and Ruth were both brought in. Or Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is the covenant made with Abraham. <coughs> now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yeah, all the God's plan from the beginning, as he's working through Abram, becomes Abraham, is all the families of the earth will be blessed. Universal. Not just this one little family. I mean, okay, as they grow, I'll bless that one family. But through that family, all families will be blessed.
Now, we're starting in Zephaniah next week, and that's why I thought of this verse in Zephaniah. Um, could you actually start in verse 9, read verses 9 and 10? So he's going to change people's speech. He's going to call them on, even beyond River of Cush, that's beyond the borders of Israel. All these people, and we could look at lots of verses in the Old Testament that show this idea. And then this is what happens. Revelation 5, 9, when they're singing to the Lamb who is Christ, they say, So that's what God has accomplished. He has accomplished a universal church. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Now again, these aren't just good, hey, you know, we learned a new idea about the church this morning. That's wonderful. Now, these truths have implications for our lives. They should affect how we live. And so here's four implications. First thing is we need to consider is what we say is true, true for all Christians throughout all time or is that something only that's true for me because if it's the truth god's truth his church is universal now you may not be as slow as me but i remember i think it was early college maybe late high school coming to this epiphany it's really dumb but being a faithful christian didn't mean you wore khaki pants and a collared shirt to church you might be like well that's dumb of course not that's all I'd known growing up. Faithful Christians, what do they do? They go to church and they wear kind of business casual. But that, that doesn't mean anything. I had taken my little slice of life and been like, this is faithfulness to God. Well, no, I need to open up my view to, you know, men in other countries wear completely different garb or women wear different garb. You're, the style of clothing, and that's just one aspect you know, but there's lots of things that we say, this is what a Christian should do, but they can't do that anywhere else. You know, we need to make sure we remember we're part of a universal church, that we're not just portraying a middle class view of what Christianity is. Um, and in that, we have to be reflective, not just cross. No problem. Not just across the globe, but across time. G.K. Chesterton has a great quote talking about church history and tradition. He says, Tradition means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely to happen to be walking about. You know what he's saying there is, look, if what we're saying is true for all time, then we need to be reflective and go, well, did they believe this 500 years ago? Now, it might be that we've grown, we've come to realize something they didn't, but we should always be very cautious. You know, our authority is scripture, not tradition, but if we're saying something radically different that the church has said for 2,000 years, then we are not being faithful to dig in and look into it. So that's one important implication now this is why this is where i put two good motivations people have for denying the universal church so first those who deny it that man i quoted earlier he wants to ensure 
that local churches are being responsible and saying, look, we're not responsible to some higher church authority. And we see that in the New Testament. You know, the local church is responsible. We've seen that even in Galatia. He writes not just to the leaders of the church of Galatia. He writes to all of them. The local church is all responsible for their actions. And the second thing they want to emphasize is that my ultimate um, responsibility in a church is not to some person who lives in another city or state, but to those in our body. But nonetheless, while I think they're trying to keep certain truths in place, I think they have to deny some of what the New Testament says, as we saw from Ephesians 5, 25, Christ died for the church. Well, the well, second implication is that we, I think, should never refuse in our local church those who are part of God's church. And we can often make requirements to participate greater than the universal church. And this has worked out even, y'all may have talked to Keith, I don't think he minds me sharing this, but here's another church in this greater area, and they are fine with them coming, but then when he was about to teach, they said, well, you need to get baptized. Well, I was baptized and I became a Christian college. Well, that wasn't by the right type of pastor. It wasn't in the right type of church. And Keith's response was, well, if you can show me from the New Testament why I need to be baptized in you know, the right type of church, well, I'll do it. And they couldn't, so Keith ended up leaving. But you know, not just that church, other two. Well, did you get baptized by the right church? Well, now, we would say if it's a heretical church, if you're baptized in a Mormon assembly, we would say that's not a legitimate baptism. But if there are, we can admit there are believers that are in Presbyterian and Methodist or whatever, well, if they've been baptized... And they've been baptized. We don't need to get the Baptist baptism on them. Um, we're a universal assembly in one sense. Uh, and so we need to be careful in that. You know, we should desire in that that our church represents us, that it's not just a certain class of people, not just a certain race of people, not just a certain socioeconomic group of people. But since God's church is universal, we should want that to work out in our own local body. Third, we should have love for both the universal and the local church. And what I mean by that is, sadly, we can often become turfy or care more about our church than any of the other churches. You know, we can maybe, oh, we might not want a minute, kind of upset that they're growing or bitter that things are going well for them. And yet, if they're truly part of God's church, then we should rejoice. Hey, they're growing. That's wonderful. However, we need to be clear on that. You know, are they being faithful? If they're not a true church, we're not going to rejoice in what they're doing. But if they are, we should be excited about that. And fourth, well, I did want to say one more thing on that. That's why I put apostolic first. Because as they are in line with apostolic teaching, then we are glad for what they do. If they aren't in line with the teaching of the apostles, God's word, that's when we would not rejoice with them. And the fourth implication, I think we should reflect more as churches on what Paul says in Romans fifteen twenty that he's not going to build on another man's foundation. And not always, but a lot of times it seems to me when people look to plant churches or start a new missionary effort, they don't pause and first go, are there any other Christians in that country that might be doing a good work? You know, are we trying to spread a certain denomination or a certain brand of theology or are we trying to spread 
the gospel. Now, I don't mean in that that you can never plant a church where there's another church or that you can never start a new missionary work where there's not a missionary work already there. But sometimes it seems to me, and I don't know people's heart, that it's more about building their brand or their church or their denomination than it is seeking to build the universal church of God. So those are, I think, some important implications. But some questions. Um, What should we do when we find ourselves jealous of, I put quote-unquote, growing churches? You can insert any adjective you want there. Or another question, since we're getting late on time, this might be real pointed. We're allowing a church plant to meet here. Should we be doing that? Is there ever a time that we would go, no, we shouldn't allow that church that wants to plant a church to meet here? Okay. I can I can let them slide on whatever preferences they have as long as what they're teaching is in line with the scripture. And as much as I really want to tell the people right here, already established, <laughs> just come on in. I should be happy that there are people who are interested. I want to see the growth of God's kingdom, not just in the Okay. Good point. Other thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I'll wrap up with this. We've looked two weeks. We're one holy Catholic apostolic church. And in that, we need to remember that God calls us to all of those. As you look through time, in my opinion, people often, not purposefully, but unintentionally, as they seek to emphasize one, neglect the other. I.e., they're really serious about holiness. So we need to avoid the world. But wait, we're apostolic. We're supposed to be sent into the world. But then the other side, we need, we're apostolic, we're sent, we're going into the world. We need to bring them in and then they forget that we're called to be holy and set apart. And then church services start looking like entertainment. And people start, as Christians, talking and acting like the world. And so in an effort to do this one, they deny this one. Or unity, oneness, hey, we need to, we're all one. You love Jesus, come on in. But then we're also supposed to be holy. We can't allow into God's church people and apostolic who are denying what the apostles taught. But then we can become so focused on apostolic and holy that only those who preach this narrow brand of theology are real. Are they really Christians? 
Yeah, do you know what they say? And so all these we need to keep in tension. We can't say, well, I really think we should emphasize this. You know, Christ says we're all these. We are one holy Catholic apostolic church. And hopefully our church is growing in all of those, not just one that we think is important because he thinks they're all important. So we'll end on.